Good morning. I tried to convince Michael to let me play Salt and Peppers, like, let's talk about sex, baby, before we, as a walk-in song, but it was a vetoed, strong veto over here from Michael Gomez. Um, But in all honesty, uh, today we are talking about sex. We're talking about lust, specifically, the vice that stems from sexual desire. And it's interesting because I think actually all the vices hold some confusion for us. That's usually because society or culture has taken whatever the term for the vices, envy is a good example we did last week, or gluttony, and we kind of distort them and over time they start to mean different things. But I I would say that lust is probably the one that we still have the most confusion about as a general culture, as a general society, where we are right now in 2022. And this is really, you don't have to look that far to notice that we're very, very confused about this. Like even in my little like church world, right? There's like opposing, what seems like opposing views within Christianity itself. You'll have some churches, maybe y'all grow up in these churches, who actually talk about sex all the time, like all the time. That's what they talk about, and usually it goes along with it, some version of purity or rule book with it. It's really hammered into youth, especially, and young adults is the focus, but they tend to kind of overemphasize the role of sex. But then you get the other side of the church, and this is the side that arguably we are a part of, is what is called kind of the mainline tradition. It's kind of your normal denominations, and as Methodists, we're part of that who actually don't talk about sex at all, like at all. And maybe you grew up in a church or a family like this where you just, we just kept our mouth shut and we moved on. We didn't ever, ever, ever have a sermon about it, God forbid, because that is not what sermons are for. And of course, like I said, like that's kind of where at least our heritage and our tradition kind of lies in that space. But both of those are really problematic, Both of those have made us more confused about sex than really we ought to be. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what sex is for, as defined by the Christian tradition. We're going to talk about our problems with sex, namely around the vice of lust. And then we're going to talk about what do we do with that information? How do we practice or move forward? How we delineate between what is a vicious cycle of ice, and what leads us to a virtuous cycle of virtue. Yes? So that's what we're going to try to do today. But before we even start, like before we even start with sexual desire, we actually have to go back and we have to do some groundwork on this thing we call the body. Because my guess is that both of those church worlds, the ones who don't talk about it and the ones who talk about it all the time, They're both starting with kind of a misrepresentation of how the body is portrayed in the Bible. So that's what we're going to start with. We're going to start with the body. And here's the the deal about what happened with the body in Christian history. There's been some unfortunate trends in Christian history that at best have ignored the body and at worst have demonized it. And a lot of this stems from some translation work in Paul, those letters at the end of the New Testament. He's the one who talks about the body a lot. And he specifically chooses one metaphor 
that he repeats over and over and over again. And it's this metaphor of flesh. That word is translated in English as flesh. And it really does mean flesh. And he chooses it as a metaphor. And he writes all sorts of things about us avoiding sins of the flesh. He says this over and over and over again. And you can imagine how Christians, when they read that stuff, kind of thought, ooh, that must mean that our body is is inherently bad in some way. If Paul is saying that the body is a source of temptation, if it's something that causes sin, then the body must be bad. And of course, there's some nuance to this, but over time, this kind of caught on. And for most of Christian history, this was kind of the view. And it wasn't until relatively recently, in the 20th century, that some people started to problematize that. Because what they noticed is when Paul was talking about sins of the flesh, there's this whole list in Galatians, not all of them are sins of the body. Like some of them are like internal, like some of them are envy or coveting things. They're not actual things you do with your flesh. And so it became really obvious that, ooh, what if Paul is not actually talking about that our body is bad? What if he was just using a metaphor to try to make a point that we have to avoid temptation that exists on the earth in all its forms, whether it affects our body or whether it affects our soul? And this was further problematized because we started to understand a little bit more about what the Jewish and Christian understanding of the body is, one that Paul held because he was Jewish. And so that understanding of the body, and we'll get to it in a second, like is, di- is directly opposed to that idea of the body being bad. And so what, what do Jews and Christians, because we share this, what do we believe about the body? And it's this. And this is from Genesis. This is from the creation story. And it's a really important verse because I think it succinctly summarizes what we mean when we talk about body. So it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and then breathed life into him. And when he did, that thing became a living being. It became a creature. So the dust traditionally has been thought to be your body, your flesh, and the breath is the spirit or the soul inside you. But what's interesting about this and what this passage, and trust me, the Old Testament emphasizes, I'm not going to show you all those passages, but it emphasizes that you can't actually separate body and soul. For someone to be a living being, for someone to be whole, you actually have to have both parts. Both parts make a person. You can't have just the body. You can't have just the soul. They have to be together. And that is what is called a creature. Nefesh in Hebrew. And so it's this interesting idea that you don't have a body, you don't have a soul. You are a body. You are a soul. This whole thing is you. And this is further emphasized when we get to Christianity. And in Paul, and specifically, and this is why people started to problematize Paul a little bit, is that Paul, he talks about the sins of the flesh, but he is actually the one who talks about something else that is now part of our apostles' creed. And this, he's talking about Jesus coming back again, and he says not only the creation is groaning for Jesus to come back again, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And this is something that freaks a lot of Christians out, but I'm just going to say, you say it in the apostles' creed. If you've ever been part of a tradition that repeats it, we repeated it last summer. The resurrection of the dead. The idea that you will be resurrected just like Jesus 
in your body, this body that you have. And I just blew some of your minds. I'm sorry about that. I'm going to move on. If you have questions about that, we can talk about that later. But that is core to Christian identity, that we are not apart from this, that this, this is eternal. This is what's going to be saved, not just our soul, our whole person. And that changes everything. Because that means that everything you do with your body matters. Everything you do with your soul matters. And furthermore, what you do with your body affects your soul, and what you do with your soul affects your body. There's no dividing them. And when we get in trouble is when we try to pull them apart. And I'm going to be honest, this is actually a harder sermon to write, not just because of the topic, but because Stephen and I were talking before, culture's view right now, and I'm not one to like critique culture all that much, but like culture's view, how I was raised, is that there are actually separate things. That your body is something that you can deal with at a biological level, and that your soul is something separate. But the Christian view, the wisdom of why we are here and why we are created and what it means to live a full and abundant life means that all of this matters. That's just, that's just what Christianity is. Like it's not for granted that Christ took on what? Flesh? Did he come as a soul? No, he took on a body. Everything depends on us understanding that everything we do with this matters because that's our view of what it means to be a living being. You saw that in Genesis, a living being. So from there, then we can start to understand why Christians over the last millennia and Jews before them took sex really seriously, maybe more seriously than culture does. It hinges on that idea that our whole world, our whole religion, our whole belief system is bodily. And this idea that sex is serious in some way is complicated. And there's been a range of beliefs about what that actually means, what that actually looks like. And then to take that and say, okay, well, what does that actually mean in practice? That's a whole different issue. But what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to walk through what the Christian view of sex is and where we got it from. I'm going to try to do essentially what people have tried to do for millennia. They have essentially taken their nod from both biology and the Bible to imply what sex is for, to answer that question. What is sex for? So we're going to start in the most obvious place because it's the metaphor that keeps getting repeated multiple places. It starts in Genesis, it's repeated a few times in the Old Testament, then it comes back in Jesus in two places, Mark and Matthew, and then Paul repeats it all the time. And you've heard this analogy because a lot of you had it in your, if you're married, had it in your wedding. 
And that's this concept of one flesh. And this is repeated a lot. And the reason that this is so important is because the Bible talks about sexuality. It's a periphery topic, but it talks about it. But this is probably our most explicit reference to sex and to what sex is for. You see, there's this analogy, and it's said in Jewish marriage ceremonies, and it's said in Christian ones today. It's this idea that two people, when they become joined together, when they have sex, they form one flesh. One flesh, that's another word just for body. One body. They form a different body. And y'all know that this has been misinterpreted and interpreted a million ways to mean a million different things, but we're going to try to break it down a little bit more about what I think, and it's, I'm supported by lots of other really smart people, think about what this means. I think, first of all, this is talking explicitly about sex. It's not saying that, like, you become a different person when you get married or you share a body with your other person when you get married. I don't think that's what it means. I think it's talking about what happens when we practice the act of mutual self-giving through sexual acts. Right? When we practice that act of full exposure, full exposure of your personhood, your entire body, your entire soul in front of another person, there's something that comes from that. And that something is what tradition has called one flesh. Now, what I think that means is that one flesh implies a bond between two people. Jesus is saying that when you have sex, something is created, a new thing, one flesh, and that new thing is a bond between two people who have shared themselves so intimately that it has become something new, something different, something to protect. Essentially, one flesh becomes the fruit of that sexual bond. And what's interesting then is then Christianity makes the jump to say, well, how do we protect that bond? And the answer, not just in Christianity, outside of it as well, has been permanence and exclusivity. In, in essence, monogamy and that it's exclusive. And that's monogamy, permanence, you know what I mean. One person, lifelong. You have to protect that bond because if not, we're doing something, and this is where the mystery enters in, that separates our body and soul in a way that we are not able to love others as best as we are called to do. So that's the first notion, is that sex creates something between two people, a bond, a bond that's not designed to be broken, a bond that then carries with it responsibilities, both to each other and to everything that that bond unites. And the best answer we have in Christianity is to form that bond in an exclusive and permanent way. Now, here's the second thing about sex that we have to contend with. And up until recently, like, honestly, this was the main thing to contend with. And that's the function of sex. You can't really get around that sex is the way that we procreate. That's it. It's the way we procreate, right? 
So if you can't get around that, but all sex doesn't lead to procreation, then what do we do about that? And here's the best answer. I think, I think that what sex is trying to imply is that it actually is about biology, but whether it actually results in a child or not, it is still uniting something beyond those two people. In other words, you're, you're uniting your whole biology, right? We think about this in DNA. You're uniting all of your familiar lines. You are bringing in this concept of what it means to be human into sex. And so what is produced there is something, again, that's a smidge of a mystery. But it's something about the life-giving capacity of humans to carry DNA, our family line, within us and move it forward through this act of complete knowing of intimacy. Now, Part of me wants to like stop and have questions, but that's like not, <laughs> not what we do here in sermons. But here, here's what I want to leave you with on like what sex is for. I'm going to leave you with a definition, okay? And again, this is me looking at the Bible, reading a lot of smart people, trying to deduce and trying to hold everyone else's sexual experiences together. But here's what I've discovered. I'm going to read it so I get it right. I think that God created sexual desire and its ultimate end, sexual intercourse, because all sexual acts ultimately point to intercourse, as a means to practice the giving and receiving of love with our whole person, being as completely known as we can be for all of who we are. And in that act of intimate knowing, sex forms a human bond, linking us biologically speaking, to human life, both created and that which has come before. With that bond comes responsibility to each other or to the children you create. That was really long. That's why it's not really like one that's preached a lot, right? But that is why I think God created sex. But what is so revolutionary about this idea what is so like not in line with how we think about sex is that through this definition, the priority is the bond making. The priority is producing some other fruit, not children, but some other fruit, some bond, another one fleshness. And so what then becomes the side effect of sex? Procreation, having a child, and pleasure. But they are not the point. And that makes sense in our experience, right? That makes sense in our experience with hormones and season changes and how pleasure, expecting pleasure solely out of sex, it's not consistent at best. And if you've ever been on any journey of wanting to be fertile or wanting to have a child and haven't been able to, you know that procreation can't be the point of sex. Otherwise, that would be, we would be lost. And this idea that pleasure is just a side effect of sex, a happy one, but a side effect, helps reorient everything that we are told about sex. And this is where lust enters in. This is where we get to that final idea of what lust is. Because lust tells us that pleasure 
is actually the point of sex. So if I had to define lust, I would say lust is excessive or disordered sexual desire in any part of your person, mind, body, spirit, soul. We call it lots of things, but any of those parts. It is a disordered desire in the same way that gluttony is a disordered desire. Do you all remember gluttony? Most people link lust and gluttony in Christian thought. And here's why. Do you remember? Let's do a quick recap of how gluttony worked, and then we'll move on to, to lust. So in gluttony, the problem with gluttony is that you started to seek pleasure for yourself and out of eating instead of these spiritual goods that came from eating experiences, being with certain people, sharing food food together, like um, eating from certain places, like those that you're connected with your community. In other words, your love of self started to rise above love of others. And that's where gluttony showed up. And lust is almost exactly the same, but with sexual desire. So what lust tells you is that your self-gratification is actually the point. That your love of self, that you receiving pleasure, is the whole point of sex. And in doing so, you disorder your heart. You move love of self above love of others, and you live ununited in your body and soul. And there's actually quite a few problems with this, with this concept of lust and sex being about pleasure. And the first one is just the problem with pleasure itself. You cannot divorce the activity that you are taking pleasure in from the pleasure itself. And let me explain this. This is not a Christian thought. This goes back to Aristotle. Aristotle proposed this idea that we cannot separate pleasure from the activity that we are taking pleasure in or the circumstances that we're taking pleasure in. So an example, gluttony is the easiest one, less charged. I'll start with gluttony. Let's start, I start with, um, okay, I'm, ve- I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm very into tea. It didn't start out that way. The first time I got like a really, really like nicely brewed like tea, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so lovely. And I felt that pleasure, right? But then I kept having that same cup of tea over and over and over again. And what happened eventually? Eventually, I stop experiencing that same amount of pleasure I did at the beginning, and it becomes less and less and less. And what do I have to do? Well, I have to get new drinks. Like, I have to be more creative, create more novel things in order to get the same amount of pleasure. And then somehow you end up with $9 matcha lattes from La La Land when you follow down that path. Yes? So that process of escalation, of requiring novelty and creativity, the same thing applies to sex, but honestly, it's more at stake, right? It's the same principle that when you pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake, something happens where it quickly escalates and you get less return. And we don't really need that much proof, but I'm going to use some extreme examples in this case because it's helpful. So we built whole industries around this. Ultimately, that's what the porn industry is, right? It's saying, if you talk to porn addicts or read any research on porn, you'll see that what started as just a means to get pleasure out of sex doesn't take that long, a few months of addiction, and suddenly you need more novelty, more graphic things. You need to walk down that path more quickly until you lead into a path 
of what Aristotle predicted, of self-destruction. Something happens to us when we pursue pleasure for pleasure's sake, when we separate the needs of the body from the needs of the soul. Aristotle predicted it then, but it's true, and Christians confirmed it later, that if you do that, you just end in a place of self-destruction. Now, there's a second problem with that, and this one, second problem with lust. It's not just the pursuit of pleasure, because that could be true in gluttony too. But there's one that's true for lust alone. And that is that in order for lust to work, in order for us to pursue pleasure at the expense of others, whether they're on the screen or whether they're in the same room as us, you can't acknowledge the other person as worthy of being known. In other words, you can't acknowledge their humanity. If you did that, then inevitably, you'd have to start recognizing them as someone that you're supposed to love. And then you'd have to prioritize them over yourself, but we don't do that. So in order to keep them beneath us, we have to dehumanize them, even if it's subtle, even if it's slight. In order for lust to work, you can't bring in the human factor into it. That's why lust primarily works through fantasy, right? You think about, I was watching um, Mrs. Maisel recently, and there's a burlesque show in it, and they start announcing the burlesque dancers. So they announce, like, Deborah, the harem lady, or something like that. And I just kept thinking, what would happen if they said, hey, this is Cindy. She has two kids. She has an alcoholic father. She wants to be a dental hygienist, but she's working here to make ends meet. What would happen? Lust couldn't work. It couldn't work because you brought humanity into the equation. You brought being known into sexual desire. And when that happens, lust doesn't work. But that's also the problem with lust, is that it tries to take sexual desire and strips it of humanity. It totally severs what a sexual relationship is supposed to be for. It disconnects us from our purpose, to love others well. Sometimes in Christianity, we call this our vocation, that we're supposed to be here to love others well, both sexually and other ways. But lust truncates communion and community. It cuts it off at the knees because you can't have lust and community. You can't have lust and humanity. They just don't work together. So then the question becomes, okay, if we're here to love each other well with our whole self, our whole body, and our soul, how do we practice that? How do we go forward in a world that's literally screaming the opposite? I mean, how do we move forward in that way? And so the way that Christian tradition frames this is moving from vice to virtue. And that's what we've talked about this whole series, right? This idea of moving from vice to virtue. And so the virtue that goes with lust is once again a virtue that has been co-opted by language to mean something else. So we're going to have to take off what we normally assume about this term and replace it with kind of the more faithful, I think more thoughtful definition. So here's one version of the virtue of chastity. It's a successful integration of sexuality within the person and thus the inner unity of a person in his bodily and spiritual being. 
In essence, what chastity tries to do is try to love with the whole person altogether well. And it rejects any behavior that starts to separate the body and soul. And it stays faithful to that unity. And what does that look like? Well, that looks like an enablement to use sex intelligently in the pursuit of human flourishing. Human flourishing is a fancy way of saying growing into the image of Christ. It's the whole Christian project. It's the whole religious project. We have to figure out and ask ourselves the question, how can I use sexual desire in a way that leads to life and avoids the path of death? How do I use my whole life, this whole thing I've been given, to be oriented towards what God has called me to do, namely, to love others. Now, chastity is not naive to the power of sex, nor it's often characterized, and I think this is important to note, lust is characterized as a sin of weakness versus a sin of malice. It is one that we fall temptation to, but in it, there shouldn't be any shame. And I know a lot of us hold shame in those sins, But that's actually not the practice of vices and virtues. The idea is that you're not going to fail. The idea is that you will fail, but you can also pick yourself up again and walk towards the virtue. And that there is forgiveness in that. But the whole project of chastity is attempting to live in that integration, to keeping that ideal ahead of you and walking towards it. Now, when we talked about this before, we often end with like spiritual practices. And every bone in my body did not want to go into the practices of chastity. And here's why. I don't want to give you a rule book. You'll have enough rule books in your life. Some of you will make your own rule books. Some of you stole some from other religions or other practices or self-help. I didn't want to give you a rule book because a rule book is not really what it's about. Chastity is not going to matter if you follow certain rules, but lust is still in your heart and mind. Chastity is not going to matter in your life if you are still functioning in a way that is disordered, in a way that prioritizes love of self over love of others. But all that being said, I didn't want to leave you with nothing. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you three practices that I think are helpful in cultivating chastity and integrating body and soul. You can take those as you will, depending on your vocation, your life stage, where you are. And if you have specific questions, you know our doors are always open and you can come and speak to us. Here's the three that I think we need to practice most in order to live into this virtue of chastity. The first is the first in every, every vice, every virtue. It's self-examination. We do not ask ourselves enough the questions that need to be asked when we are feeling lustful. Some of us don't even notice when we're feeling lustful. We don't even notice when that disorder has happened because it's so normalized in society that we can't even discern lust from good sexual desire. So that's the first place to start. Where is that disordering happening? When is it happening? My guess, lust functions a lot like gluttony. It's late at night in front of a refrigerator when you have no one around and you just, something happened. You lost someone, you lost a job maybe. When you are hurt and when you are afraid, that's when lust comes for you. Because ultimately, underneath that physiological urge is actually a deeper urge, right? 
the urge to be known and to be loved. And it's much easier to get a quick fix than it is to spend all the time and energy and investment in actually committing to a long-term relationship. Where does less show up for you and when? When do you notice the patterns? That's the first question of self-examination. And then I think there are just some really practical guardrails. There's some things that traditionally have been practiced over and over again that people have found helpful in terms of navigating lust. Some of these are technology, firewalls, accountability apps. Those exist. They're really helpful. Some of them are more related to kind of how you practice your outward expression. Some of this is why Christians tend to focus on the way you dress. Do you dress for a way that's for sexual consumption or not? Some of this has to do with content consumed. What media are you consuming? And it's not just porn. I think there's also versions where anything that seeps into your mind that causes you to prioritize or treat someone as less than yourself, that's where the problem exists. Anything that builds on those fantasies in yourself is something to be monitored. Does not make it sinful, does not make it bad. It means that essentially what sex or what lust tries to do is like, here's a cliff. Lust tries to push you off the edge. Chastity is staying away from that edge as far as possible. It does not mean, oh, I can handle it, I can handle it, I'm going to go up to that edge. We all know how, how that ends. Like, that's the whole theory behind addiction, right? Is that we set up guardrails to block ourselves, and we are not immune to that, addict or not. So setting up practical guardrails. And then the third one, and I'll finish quickly, the third one is actually love. And this seems like such a Sunday school answer, but bear with me. Because here's the deal. Lust only occurs when you are starved for love. That is actually the issue here. When we get underneath all this stuff, like what is lust actually opposed to? It's opposed to love. The answer is not to get a better firewall, even though that could be helpful. If you are struggling with lust, the answer is actually good friendships. The answer is investing yourself in community where you practice receiving love from other humans in a way that is non-sexual to fill that need that you have, that we all have, to be loved and to be known. That is the best advice I can give you. And maybe why lust runs rampant in a society that also struggles with loneliness. We do not know how to do friendships well. And we struggle because of it. If you are struggling with lust, find community. And I know that's easier said than done. But be your own advocate of what that means and what you'll have to endure to make that happen. And then finally, the final piece is not just human love, but divine love. And this is where you roll your eyes and it feels like way higher than what you can attend. But that need of being known and being loved is actually met ultimately in God. How often are you contemplating the love of God for you? What does that spiritual practice look like in your life? What does actual communion with God look like to remind yourself of that love that he holds for you? Is there a specific Bible verse? Like, I am fearfully and wonderfully made in Psalm 139 that reminds you 
that there is a love open for you, no matter what your life stage or your life status may be. Okay, I'm gonna end here with a mini story about Augustine. So one of the famous stories about Augustine, who's this really important guy who wrote a lot about church history, is when he was a teenager, he wrote a prayer that said, God, grant me chastity, but not yet. And he, this story is told because Augustine later, it's like, first of all, it reflects like our feelings, right? Like, great, 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 that's great, an ideal, love it, can't do it, right? Like that is our daily experience with chastity, myself included. Great, so great, I can work on gluttony instead, right? I don't wanna deal with that, that feels not fun. That feels too high a standard. But what Augustine reflects on at the end of his life and what he really realizes is he tries like the whole time, his whole life to fight against it and he fails, like miserably fails, y'all. He fails and he falls into these sexual habits that over time, guess what happens? They become more and more of a habit. They form more and more in his character and he can't break free from them. And at the end of his life, he writes this prayer and says, oh my gosh, he received this question, and he wrote it in form of the prayer, of God telling him, why are you trying to do the thing that you can't do yourself? And he realized in that moment that he had been efforting to figure out chastity on his own instead of receiving the gift that it was from God. That's exactly what this last song that we're about to sing is about. It is about realizing that it is Christ in you, working in you, that gives you even the hint of power to be able to do something so difficult as to integrate the body and soul as we are intended to live. And I hope that that's the message that you leave with here. That this is the ideal. This is what we work for. And it is hard. And you cannot do it without the power of the Holy Spirit working in you and giving you that gift. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift of sexual desire. We thank you for all that it means, even though we haven't quite nailed down what that mystery means yet. We know it's linked to something human, something innate in us, something that needs to be given and received. And we pray, Lord, that we may follow you and how we are supposed to do that. And we pray in doing that that we might live out our vocation to love others and love you with our whole body, our whole soul, our whole living being. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.